this podcast is called Thanks kids This is a podcast about books, reading, listening, creating and enjoying them No prior knowledge is needed No level of education required If you're interested in the literary world Come with me, Jasper Peach While I draw back the velvet curtain And have some informal chats with people who are part of the biz I'm a slow reader I have some pretty funky brain fog going on and I love books. It takes me a while to read them and I mostly listen to them. So I wanted to make a podcast that reflects all types of participation in the enjoyment of literature. Slow Reader is recorded and produced on unceded, stolen Jar Jar Warren country. Eloise Grills is the creator of one of the most astounding and affirming memoirs I've read, and I read a lot of own voices stories. It is my kryptonite to peer through the wordy window of a person and catch a glimpse of how they see the world. Her book, Big Beautiful Female Theory, is available in all its pink-edged illustrated glory. And we're going to chat about that and whatever else comes up today on Slow Reader. Thank you for your time today, Eloise. Thank you. That was such a gorgeous introduction. Thank you so much. I'm happy to follow you around and just walk into doorways. <laughs> prior to your entrance and let people know what's about to befall them. Um, no worries at all. So I remember first seeing your work in Mianjin and part of my brain just exploded with joy and recognition and I hadn't really seen anything like this work before. I kept coming back to it both on my phone and in my mind. Um, there was something about the resonating truth and the honesty and the strength of your conviction, but also how unhinged and funny and bittersweet it is. Can you tell me how you came to work in this um, in this illustrated essay style? Is that the right kind of way to describe what you do? Yeah, I would call them illustrated essays. Um, I think I've always, um, I guess, wanted to, um, like I've always been drawn to the visual and the um, the written, and I've always sort of, I'd always done them sort of separately um, and I never sort of put them together um, until I was studying and I did a class on comics and I really love comics as well. But I think something about, um, you know, I think that com- combination of image and text and particularly through zines and things like that, which I've always really enjoyed reading and um, writing as well, um, it just, yeah, it drew me to that sort of more experimental sort of mix of the two. Um, so I really, I love comics and I love writing, but yeah, I love putting text and image together and playing with, you know, having them sort of speak back to one another and thinking about how I can sort of play with form. And that's what I wanted to do in each of the essays in the collection. I wanted to play with form and think about how form can influence the reading process in that sort of way. Um, so particularly, you know, um, I think the most, uh, my favourite sort of example is like the formal play that I've done in the Museum of Fat Bitches Art, where I've sort of created a gallery of, you know, all these particular art pieces and, you know, played with the idea of placards and, you know, frames and things like that in a way that I don't think I would be allowed to do in a straightforward comic, if that makes any sense. And the mirrors stood out to me. <laughs> that so it's so good. Um, before we get any further in, I wonder if you could share a passage that you're proud of. Um, I guess to as that little piece of honey on toast. If people haven't read your book yet, um, 
what can they expect? If you could share some with us. Absolutely. Um, I um, I might read a little bit from the last essay called Huge Sweeping uh, Meaninglessness of Life with Human Body for Scale, just because I feel like it's the most recent one that I wrote and I feel like the proudest of it in that way. Um, but, yeah, I will just give it a read then. Uh, huge Sweeping Meaningless. Well, and just as you can tell, there's lots of illustrations, so I won't be reading those out, but if you get the book, then you'll be able to see them. <laughs> uh, huge sweeping meaninglessness of life with human body for scale. When I was 26, I wrote a visual diary of my life for an online magazine for $60 a month. Now I have a record of some of the shittiest times of my, my life, preserved like an ant in amber until the website disappears. When I was 27, I wrote a comic about my mental breakdown for a feminist website for $50 or so. The website has since disappeared, been scrubbed from the internet by the web host. I don't even think I saved the comic. So that is that. When I was 28, I also wrote for an online magazine. Humiliatingly obvious op-eds about sex, polemics I didn't and don't and won't ever believe in. I was paid $100 a month, for which I had to hassle the editor. I got my money in the end. Most people didn't. The online magazine has now disappeared, fallen on the online scrap heap. For this one, I am grateful. I bequeathed my chunky period mishaps and sad monologues about, in, uh, about girls in high school who shoulda, woulda been nicer to me. I became a fleshy cog, one of one million desperate arms clawing at one million typewriters squealing like a Philip Glass choir, the cacophony swelling creating the great American misery memoir, and I'm not even American. I have mined my life for stories, not so much like diamonds, but peculiar reams of rock. Flabby narratives without resolution or order cohered into shape by contour tights. I have mined my life for stories so much that I am running out of them. The cave becoming a wet and endless hole, guzzling up ideas and nuance. I am running out of stories like the drunk at the bar. I have run out of reasons to draw my body. I have drawn it naked, crying, fucking, masturbating, pissing, kissing, lounging, bathing. I draw myself to replicate the feeling of hovering inside slash outside myself, like a camera, like a bee. Anticipating and incorporating and magnifying all criticism, all of these projections overlapping and undulating and fuck dancing over one another like tawny teenagers desperate for attention. Each time I draw myself, it overwrites some previous version of my body. Will I ever know myself? Will you ever know me? Do I stink of desperation? And if so, can I rinse its stink off me? Um, I might stop there. That's okay. Ah, uh, I yeah. I've mined my life of stories. It's the the constant. Um, it's the constant thing as a memoirist and a and writing the self. I sometimes I feel like I'm being really creepy about myself. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm working I'm working on this uh memoir about being in a fat um crippled queer body and I just feel like am I allowed to <laughs> am I allowed to be describing what's going on so much but there is so much that goes on and there's so much that that are really universal experiences and then there's so much that people will be like, what the fuck? I didn't know that was a thing that are just everyday, um, everyday things for us as, as sort of memoirists. Um, yeah, I, I find like with that, sorry, I find with that as well, like um, there's um, 
I feel like the more specific something is that I've read of somebody else's, the more relatable I find it, even if it's not something that I've experienced personally, that sort of, yeah, that honing in and having that really, really specific experience, it just makes me feel more connected to them, if that makes any sense. Yeah, big time, big time. You're right. It's the devil in the detail that really connects. Um, I feel like so many of the elements that that hold us back as creators that that bring up that nasty critical voice you don't deserve to take up any space get back in your box you've got it so good you take them on writing in this book um there's work in there about privilege about peer group cruelty about self-centeredness um can you tell me about writing those threads into the work um absolutely I think um, I'm very interested in work that um, doesn't necessarily see, you know, the the memoirist or the protagonist as like the hero in their own life all the way through because I don't think that's very true and I find that um, sometimes I read people's memoirs and it's just writing about, you know, a bunch of terrible things that have happened to them and how horrible everyone has been to them and I think, you know, I get that, but I feel like we are all complicated beings and we all have the potential of being both, you know, um, a victim and also an aggressor um, in our lives. And I think being honest about that and reflecting about that is a very important thing to me. But also I think in terms of that idea of, you know, self-doubt and um, you know, sort of that inner critic voice, it's just something that's been so constant to me throughout my life. It's something that's always been a backing track to everything that I do. So I'm not trying to give it any more power, but I'm just trying to be honest about it and be realistic about it and go, you know, this is something that I've experienced. Um, I've experienced a lot of insecurity and anxiety. And I think a lot of people as writers, um, particularly as creative people, we do face a lot of that. And there is a lot of self-chat and it is a constant sort of, it can be a constant struggle to sit yourself down and work despite that voice. I cannot believe the timing of this conversation. So um, yesterday someone in, in a writing group I mean, on Facebook posted this link to a, um, a Melbourne Uni Fellowship. Um, I think you you got a, a highly commended in. Um, yet it's like a, a one-off kind of cash prize to help you um, progress your work um, as, as an autobiography or that kind of life story. And it's from like a queer person. And I was like, oh, okay, that's that's hopefully that could actually be a thing that works out. And then it said you have to do a synopsis. So I start, so the way I work is not linear. Um, I just go, oh, this thing, and then go blah, 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 and write a thing and then tighten it up and work on it. But it's not like there's a there's a beginning, middle, and end. It's more a bunch of essays that somehow once they're all in place, I can see how it makes sense. And as I was writing the synopsis, all I could hear in my head was, what a fucking dickhead. Who cares about this story? Oh my God, you think you're good. Um, how do, do you have any any tips for how you tell that voice to go away that will actually work? Um, I think there are times <laughs> when it just won't go away. 
and that's um, fair enough. And I think in those moments, those are the times that you should be going and taking care of yourself and doing things that make you feel good. Um, and then, you know, once you've done that, sometimes you will be more open to um, to working in that way. But I think you should absolutely apply. I think it's the Peter Blasey Fellowship. I think you should absolutely apply for that. It sounds like the perfect thing for you. Um, <laughs> it's very competitive, but I think I find those sort of opportunities as well um, rather than seeing them as, you know, I have to get this thing or I must or I should, which is also another aspect of that inner critic voice. It's more setting them as deadlines and being like, well, I'm going to try and I'm going to work on something and I'm going to try and put it in. But whether or not I get it, um, it will just be a way for me to continue to develop my work and thinking about it in that more sort of process-based way. And, yeah, I think... Um, trying to in some way um, focus on the craft and the process and the fun because I think once you get past that voice and you sit down and you you know you start working you get into that you can get yourself into that flow state and that flow state is really important for creativity and it's a time where you're so in the moment and of things and you know I don't know sounding a bit hippie-ish here but you're you're really concentrating at the on the task at hand and it becomes impossible for that voice to impede on that. Mm, I love that state. I, lo- I, wish, I wish it was a thing you could push a button and just manufacture it, but you're right, you really do need to build in those, those really positive habits of being able to access that honesty and, and really reflecting on I'm not always the hero in this. <laughs> In this story sometimes I'm kind of a dick and that's okay and good to write about good to understand um I mean you, you sort of mentioned it's a bit hippie-ish but I really think there's something in if you're in uh if you're in a, a state if you're in a person in a in a life where you're a you're a minority in some way or you're uh, misunderstood the ideas about your life can often be they can be around around keeping everything in the dark to keep you quiet. But if you shine a light on it and actually look at all the sides of it, that's how you get the boogeyman to go away. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm relatively new to, to this literary world and I've been sort of sussing it all out. And, and when, I, when I decided, okay, well, I'll be a writer now because the pandemic has meant that my job is not a thing I can do anymore. Um, and I thought, what do writers do? Oh, they get a Twitter. So I got a Twitter and I started watching what was going on. And it's really, really entertaining, actually, watching all the, the interactions and um, people's personalities and how they play out. Um, but what I've noticed is that when people win awards and prize money, their response is always so thoughtful. And there's often a really beautifully set out argument for a living wage for artists, for funding for the arts, um, the, the importance of supporting this industry to keep thriving, to continue challenging our, our views as readers. Can we talk a bit about what awards mean in your career? Um, awards have been incredibly important. Um, I won um, the Lifter Brower Experimental Nonfiction Prize a few years ago for the first essay in this collection, which spurred me actually, I, I eventually I got a book deal with Brow Books, which obviously fell through with their um, sort of collapse or not they're not collapsed but they're not currently publishing basically um, but that still um, motivated me to you know apply for grants and apply for fellowships and do all that kind of thing and I feel like before I um, 
I won that award, I didn't really have that much confidence in my own work. Um, and yeah, I think it just opened a lot of doors. But I think it's a, you know, that double edged sword where I feel incredibly lucky and incredibly privileged to work, win that prize and also the Melbourne Prize for Literature or the Melbourne Writers Prize, sorry, the Melbourne Prize for Literature was a bigger prize, which um, Christoph Cholkis, um, I can never say his name properly, but um, he um, deservedly won. Um, but I think, you know, I, I get, when I get these awards, I also feel this, you know, I feel that sense of impo being an imposter and I'm also very aware that, you know, perhaps things about me make me more palatable to, um, to awards and to grants and, you know, I'm very good at writing grant applications. I have, I used to work as a, a receptionist at a school um, so I'm very, very good at those official sounding, very um, proper sort of ways of writing when I have to do it. And I feel like a lot of people who don't, you know, have those privileges, they don't have the capacity for that as much. So, yeah, I'm aware that it's, you know, very privileged position to be in as well. Um, but I feel incredibly lucky and it's helped me actually be able to work as a writer um, while not holding down, you know, three part-time jobs. Um, I'm currently <laughs> don't have any of that funding, so I'm more figuring out how I'm going to continue funding my writing now. But, yeah, um, I think just getting that little bit of an extra push um, has certainly been really helpful. And I'm going to get my wisdom teeth out finally because of that oh, uh, Melbourne Prize money. <laughs> so good, so good. Oh, you'll look so cute with your chipmunky cheeks afterwards. <laughs> Isn't oh, it wild so that you that you've won a literary prize and you're using it for dental care? <laughs> it's such a great overarching statement of of what the arts is like at the moment. Um, Very messed up, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I'm, oh my god. I'm re I'm really interested in um in the emotional element of of being named in a shortlist and then. What, what is it like to get that first piece of recognition? Because you mentioned that you didn't have a lot of confidence in your work and which I find astounding because obviously you're amazing. Um, do you not read it and go, oh, it's not bad. Um, <laughs> but to be, to be shortlisted and then there's the waiting and, and looking at the other people in the list, like are you, like what is it like to be in that shortlist? What's your response like at that time? Uh, very adrenalized, very stressed, but also very excited. Um, often feeling like um, it's also a really great way um, to be exposed to other writers that you haven't been exposed to before. Like um, I hadn't read Vivian Blacksall's work um, and she is fantastic. I absolutely love her. And we got to be to chatting and um, being quite friendly through the process of being on the shortlist together. And we had to go to all these meetings on Zoom and stuff. It was quite a lot of stuff that we had to do. And <laughs> she was messaging me the whole time and making jokes and all this kind of stuff. And I was trying as hard as I could because it's like this really official like Zoom ceremony to, um, to not to <laughs> smile or crack up. Um, but yeah, I think that's the thing. And it's, yeah, it's just a really weird experience. And I think some, it's also that tension between some awards, they tell the winner beforehand and some they don't. So with the lift a brow thing, they did, 
they they told me way in advance with the Melbourne Prize. I had no idea. So I had no, nothing prepared really. I had a list of the names of the judges just so I wouldn't forget their names. But apart from that, I had nothing. And I just, yeah, it was funny. There was like a news article and there were all these like great quotes from everyone else and then like no quotes from me because my speech was just, oh, hello. Oh, my gosh. It's, it's so great. It's so great to... And, oh, man, how's those people who just elbow you at the time when you're not allowed to laugh? They're the worst and the best. They're so good. <laughs> I still um, I still text my friend a picture from a gig that we went to about 11 years ago where someone was saying something very serious and they kept making me laugh and I had to pretend I had a coughing fit and leave the room. Um, <laughs> one of my best mates, best mates. Um, in the piece that you read, earlier I, I really wanted to touch on this actually there's there's awards and there's prize money but you also detail in the book the income generated from from I guess being an emerging writer and bearing your soul in various online and paper publications it's not even enough to pay for ongoing therapy which we all clearly need is there a pressure to maintain gratitude while while screaming into the void about how unsustainable these figures are um yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, none of this is, I think, the problem or the, um, you know, intention of the people in these industries. Like most of these places are run by, you know, unpaid or very lowly paid editors anyway, um, and they just do it for the love of it. And you've sort of got to do it for the love of it too. And it's everyone doing everything for the love of things without getting paid. And it's just, I think it's, yeah, it's quite ridiculous and it's quite... Um, yeah, it makes me a bit angry, um, the fact that people don't get paid properly for their work. But at the moment, there's just nothing, you know, you can join the MEAA, MEAA, you can, you know, be involved in unionism, but it doesn't really seem to change much. And it's just, I don't know, it just seems to be the reality that we live in. And, you know, I think my general um, thing at the moment is I always have a, some sort of part-time job and I sort of use that as a way to you know support myself while I'm working on my art because I think um, yeah expecting writing to pay the bills is just not a realistic thing um, and then I can also you know if it feels less like work in that way I can sometimes draw a bit more joy from it anyway it's like this is my my treat that I get to do after doing my other work but yeah I do definitely think of it as real work and I think it should be thought of in that way but I don't think think things are going to change in any significant way very soon at all so I think we have to get our joy and our um adulation and all that kind of stuff in the now rather than thinking about this possible future when things are better because that's just self-defeating I think oh yeah big time I um one of my weird part-time jobs is ghostwriting wedding ceremonies for celebrants who are too busy <laughs> what sort of part-time jobs are you doing to support your work um uh, well I just uh finished working at one of them but um I was doing um disability art um facilitation so um helping um a group of adults with disabilities with their artworks and things like that. Um, I've done hospo in the past. Um, I do a bit of university teaching, so I've taught at RMIT in the creative writing department. Um, but, it, yeah, it's all very sort of piecemeal. And also um, but through my writing practice, like, the vast majority of the work that I get paid for is not writing but running workshops or, you know, doing those sort of things, like not actually 
directly related to my work but I absolutely love running workshops and I love helping people with their work and I love um, I think particularly comics and drawing and life writing um, can be quite therapeutic and I love sort of um, taking people out of themselves and taking them out of the idea that they can't draw and giving people permission to play with these things because I think they're so it's so rare that we have the opportunity to do that. Mm. I, I saw that you're one of the mentors for Writers Victoria as well. And if I ever get more than $3 together, I'm definitely throwing it at you to help me. Um, what is it like to, to take an emerging writer on as a mentee? How's that process working? Um, I think it's really valuable. Um, I haven't actually formally done it through um, Writers Victoria yet. I'm going to be working with someone soon, which I'm really excited to do. But with my um, disability work, I've also done some um, one-on-one mentoring with that. And, yeah, I think it's really lovely to sort of support someone and to um, help them access, you know, their their strengths. Um, I always try to work in a strengths-based Um, way and sort of yeah thinking about it rather than it being you know a really serious thing where it's like we've got to meet these goals and get you applying for this grant and things like that thinking about it as more an opportunity to play and think about things in a way that isn't um, stressful or scary but that sort of you know I can um you know, I can think of a poet that I really love that this person would love that they might not have heard of or something like that or I can yeah if I can sort of open their mind in that sort of way or, you know, suggest somewhere they could publish their work as well Um, because I think a lot of people when they're starting out are really insecure about sending their work out there. What is your consumption of literature like? Are you a read book on paper, audiobook, e-book, combo? What's your style-y? I am all of the above. Really? Um, Particularly when I... When I'm quite busy and I've got lots of things to do, that's when the audiobooks come out. Um, and also when I've got a lot of painting and stuff to do for my work, then I will audiobook, podcasts, all that stuff. I'm just all over it all the time. Um, and also, you know, when I'm tired, when I don't have the energy to read, I turn to the audiobooks as well. Um, I think they're a really fantastic tool. And I, I do not think that there is a difference um, intellectually between reading and uh, listening to audiobooks I think they're both fantastic options and I find that when I listen to audiobooks I'm more able to be transported into the stories in a really lovely way so I think it's it's almost you know the joy of like having a parent read to you when I when you were a child there was nothing better than that I think yeah. <laughs> um, like I just remember my dad reading me Rowan of Wren and it just being the most like captivating experience um, yeah. but yeah but um, I also read a lot on Kindle. Um, I often do that. Um, I know Amazon's evil, but I just, it's just easy. And I often just like get some international titles that way. Um, you know, the really big sellers and things like that. I'm like, that author doesn't really need my money. I'll just yeah. get it on Kindle. Um, and with local authors, I do try to buy their books if I can. Um, because I think particularly, you know, debut authors or people going through indies or people who are doing sort of unusual stuff, um, they really do need the sales. So mm. I always try try to buy the actual book. Me too. I, I, don't, I don't know if you've, you've heard me banging on about this on the podcast, but I started this, this project off talking about, about books and how people consume them because um, 
me picking up a book that's just a lot of text. It doesn't doesn't get into my brain because of my um, fatigue and and chronic pain stuff. So I was really interested in in how how everyone gets into books and how they how they eat them all up and um, and what I've learned through talking to people and through having a go at different things is that like your book completely accessible because there were big pictures and I know that sounds kind of I don't know it doesn't sound anything I'm not going to put a value judgment on it um, before I talk myself down um, but that there's space in the page for me to sink into the text as well as the images um, and I've become this this full-on poetry lover now because poetry is really accessible to my brain which is it's such a beautiful discovery I'm what I'm, I'm 41 and I didn't really know until recently that that was a thing for me um yeah you can read a book of poetry in an afternoon you know yeah like if you um I mean if you're racing through it but um I think yeah and I think comics as well like you can read a cop mm. a really like complex graphic novel you can still read them in about a day and yeah. I really love that <laughs> Yeah, me too. So, yeah, like you were saying, if if there's um, debut authors or and if if I've read their book on audiobook, I still I, I love to have the books on my shelf so I can look at them and go, oh, that was great. That was a really great experience being in that story with them. Um, particularly mm-hmm. when the author reads reads the audio to me, it's mm-hmm. such a and then I force them to be my friends. So I think the first person I interviewed for this podcast was Kaya Wilson um, about his book as beautiful as any other oh Mm. what a bloody dream boat what an absolute magical story that was every word just his true life story amazing amazing um and I and I love to see his book on my shelf because I look at that and I look at Eve Ray's book and I look at um Nevozazin's book and I look at your book and I think yeah I I could put a book next to those books if I keep at it if I keep having a crack and I keep I hate to use the onion analogy, but bloody hell, you know, just getting getting through all, all the all the layers that you need to get to the real nut of what you're trying to say. Um, Absolutely. And I think the tangibility of books, like if you're listening to an audio book, I think it's more of a sort of like an emotional experience where you sort of go on a journey. But then taking that and then looking at the book and looking at the way that it's structured and thinking about that pacing and things like that that happen mm. I think they're harder to conceptualize when you're listening, if that makes any sense. So yeah. even just like as a writer, like, you know, doing both and then looking at that and going, oh, so they've sort of, you know, spent this much time on this and then moved on to that. And it sort of can be helpful for your writing brain, if that makes any sense. Yes. Yeah, it does. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Um, yeah, I'm so I'm so thankful for your book. I I don't know. I just I thank you for being visible so that. So many of us don't feel so invisible anymore. I really do. It's a, oh, it's a big thing. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I think as well, like, it's one of those last things, that, like, you know, writing about fatness and things like that. And I think also, um, to an extent, also disability. But it's like, people, you're allowed to be so horrific and so horrible about fatness. Like, mm. there is just so much of that garbage out there. Um, and I listened to, I read that piece that Beck Shaw wrote about um, yeah, that was brilliant yeah wearing the fat suit but just to hear that all these people on Facebook were just commenting and saying you know you should basically if you're fat then you deserve to die it's just yeah. horrible it's so I violent just, 
Mm. I don't understand it. Like mm. my perspective is that, you know, um, even like I don't think fatness is a, uh, you know, is correlated to health or like you can't tell someone's health from looking at their body, mm. right? But even if being fat did make you sick and make you need more help, why would that be a bad thing? Like mm. I don't think people who smoke should not be supported by the medical system. I don't think people who make choices that, mm. you know, can be harmful. I don't think that they deserve any less care than anybody else. Mm. And to, <laughs> I think once you start going down that pathway and you start going into that logic, it just becomes really dangerous and it just becomes really ableist as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it stinks of eugenics, doesn't it? Um, absolutely absolutely it's yeah it's mm. very yucky um my kid came home from kinder and said to me if I eat all my vegetables I'll be healthy forever and live till I'm very old and I looked at them and I went oh and I thought what I eat all my vegetables I'm still quite unwell through no fault of my own how do I how do I balance what they're learning from their peer group and from elders at their kinder to the reality of having a disabled parent um Mm. it's really it's really tricky because I don't want to crap all over what the teachers said um so I just try and be a little bit subtle about it but it's oh Mm. it's such a uh I don't know it kind of what words do I want to use those ideas really infuse everything no matter where you're looking um, yeah, and there's, I think there's nothing wrong with learning about nutrition um, and nutrition is really important and eating vegetables is really important, but it's not it's not a cure-all and it's not going to change, you know, the structures that we live in and any of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's, yeah, it's quite yucky how insidious all that stuff yeah. is. I'm working on a piece at the moment about PE and um, sport in primary and secondary school and... Um, the general horror therein. Um, and I, as I was writing, I remembered this specific incident that happened. Um, of course, I'm completely uncoordinated and um, had a quite quite a uh, spectacular incident with a hurdle and fell fell on my head and all, all, the, all that stuff. I, I went home and I, my mum said, you don't have to go to school when it's sports carnival anymore, love. It's okay. And the next day I was surrounded by all these boys saying, oh, that was so funny watching you try to run. And I was, I was really shocked, but not shocked. And then I was like, what do I say back? And I said, not as funny as it was tr- watching you try to read. Um, which is not an okay thing to say Um, and I didn't feel okay about saying it but everyone just went like I had been the bad guy in that situation which I had as well but it was not acceptable for me to to be nasty to him in that way but completely acceptable for him to to talk about my lack of coordination how I fell over which was related to my cute little Winnie the Pooh tummy so it's and it, it, that kind of viewpoint still stands to this day. It's really odd. I find it really strange. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so many people go through high school and primary school and stuff and they're not that great at sports and you just get really turned off exercise. And I was always yeah. like, I hate exercise. I never exercise. And um, it was only till like a couple of years ago I discovered boxing 
And I oh, absolutely love boxing. It's so fun. It's so yeah. like enjoyable. And it's, you know, not about being the the fastest or, you know, like being the the best in any way. It's you're really your only opponent or you know because I'm not actually boxing but we'll clarify that I'm not fighting people but like working on my technique and getting better it's just about improving um for myself and it's not actually about like there's no sort of tangible goals in that sort of way but it's just about moving my body and feeling good about it and yeah, yeah and getting some of that frustration out as well oh like I, yes yeah <laughs> being forced into those running sports and competitive sports and stuff when you're younger it's just like so not me I'm just so not competitive but yeah. you know give me get me in a pair of boxing gloves and I'll just have yeah, a time <laughs> yeah we got a we got a punching bag recently because both of the kids are really high energy and I've been doing some some weight for my lung recovery after I'm um, having pneumonia and I'm just loving doing weights I'm 41 I love this new way of moving and I feel strong and I feel capable and the kids have watched this and they're like I'm exercising like mum and we all cut sick on this punching bag and it's so much fun it's such a fun family activity and as well I feel like people who are like um femme presenting like they're so discouraged from weights and boxing and all these sort of like you know things that are coded as masculine but they're just so much fun like no one told me (laughs) yeah I really enjoy um lifting my lilac weights I think they're very pretty the last question I wanted to ask you just as part of of our discussion for this podcast um and thanks again for your time Eloise is is what are you reading at the moment and what's your favorite read from the last 12 months Okay, I have prepared for this, so thank you for that. Um, it's weird they both sort of have women or women in the title, but that wasn't intentional or I, I don't only read books that have women in the title. Um, but The Women I Know by um, Katerina Gibson, it's a collection of short stories. Um, they're quite a, kind of delicious, um, sort of slow-paced. They're quite caustic, um, filled with a sort of disaffection and humour, um, some of them have a bit of a science fiction element, like there's a um, woman in there who's making these sort of uh, real dolls and clicking their eyes in, like that's her job. She's just in a factory clicking in eyes and then she finds one that looks exactly like her and it's very sort of creepy and another one where a woman meets a woman who like, yeah, looks exactly like her and then the woman sort of insinuates herself into her life and moves into her house with her husband and stuff. So, yeah, it's kind of and it's a lot of it's about climate catastrophe and things like that as well and I think there's a real beauty and a harshness and, yeah, real humour in the way that she writes and I'm really, really enjoying that. So it's lovely to... To, yeah be reading um yeah contemporary writers who are um doing new things and doing them in an interesting way and are you know local to the state that I live in as well um my favorite book from the last year um it's a bit of actually a collection of short stories as well which is interesting because I write so much non-fiction but there you go I've been really enjoying fiction lately um today a woman went mad in the supermarket by Hilma Wallitzer Um, And it's about this married couple and just sort of like the really boring, ordinary parts of their life. Um, There's just one about like her being having insomnia and sort of wandering around the house and being really annoyed. There's a lot of her being really, really annoyed Um, and his her husband's ex-wife coming to stay with them and all the drama that that causes but they're they're really deeply funny and sardonic and yeah sort of quite surprising as well um and they're all like sort of 
written written over many many years as well I think she started the like writing these stories in the 60s and the most recent one is from maybe two years ago and it's um I won't spoil that because it's a really affecting story but it's about her relationship with her husband it's fictionalized but it's also to do with COVID um and that experience um and yeah I just found it really really funny and unusual and lovely and I love things that are just about the domestic and about sort of boring aspects of life and making them funny and accessible to people. I think that's, you know, one of my favourite kinds of writing. Oh, my God, they both sound great. I've heard a lot about Today a Woman Went Mad in the Supermarket, um, and that's definitely on my my TBR pile, Electronically in the Sky. Oh, thanks, Eloise. I, I, hope, um, I hope to see more from you, but no pressure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> at all I, I can't imagine what it must be like to have created this this beautiful book and and also the, thank you for the pink edges um such an important detail and have it out there and have people holding it in their hands in their homes and and reading all about you and what you've written and and the images that you've created as well it must kind of be a bit kooky um but whatever comes next I'm very very excited to read and see and share and celebrate your work and thank you just thank you thanks for being such a rad awesome person oh thank you so much and thank you for this lovely interview it's um you had some really really uh unusual questions that I haven't been asked before so thank you for that score Uh, (laughs) (laughs) quite unique quite unique Thanks for listening to this podcast, produced and presented by me, Jasper Peach. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jasper Peach Says. Huge gratitude to Monique Bodger for her original music created just for us. If you'd like to support my work, generally having a chat with people and getting words on the page about books, writing, parenting, queerness, disability, all that jazz, I have one of those buy me a coffee thingos. Links are available in the show notes as well as the profile on all my socials. And I really, really appreciate any contribution. Makes a huge difference. Thank you, Eloise Grills, for the conversation today. Next time, I'll be talking with Elsa Wilde about her book, You'll Be a Wonderful Dad. Till next time, may your illustrations be mirrors and your words hit people right in the guts. Thank you.